Go ahead and take your seat, and uh, we'll dismiss our children to children's ministry. Over the last several months, we've spent a lot of time in Acts 2, which is really, when you boil it down, the story of the conversion of 2,000 plus people from uh, Judaism to a, a new thing that didn't even have a label at the time, to a, to a new Christ-centered faith. They weren't called Christians yet even, but we've been talking about this conversion from Judaism from an old way of living to this new way of living, and we've been hung up for the last three weeks on one phrase, the apostles' teaching. I thought that was going to be a sermon with three points. It wound up being three sermons, and we're going to wrap that up today as we really do nail down what is meant by the phrase, the apostles' teaching. It's significant because it's placed first in the list in Acts 2.42 of what the Christians did what the Christians did after their conversion, in response to their conversion. A couple weeks ago, I showed you a verse in Luke 9, 38, where I believe the Father demonstrates what apostolic teaching is all about. And in that moment, in that verse, he says, this is my son of Jesus. So he is adoring Jesus. He says, my chosen one, this is the centerpiece of history. This is this is the one upon whom all history hinges. This is the one for whom and through whom and to whom all things were created. So he's exalting Jesus. And then he says, listen to him. And he's applying Jesus. He's saying, listen, do what Jesus tells you to do. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about obedience. But as I was thinking through this subject this week, through the lens of Acts 2, I realized that this is a little bit more complicated and I think that there's many reasons for that. You know, these Jewish people, when they were converted, they, they, they didn't love Jesus before, and now they did. So there's this dramatic change, right? Um, they didn't see Jesus as the centerpiece of history or the centerpiece of the scriptures, and now they do. So again, a really dramatic change. But I can't say they didn't obey the word before, and now they do. With as much clarity and simplicity, I could say it, and I, and I could mean it, but I, I can't say it as much clarity and simplicity because these people were obeying the Bible before. They were obeying God's laws before. And their new relationship with God's word and how they obey it is a little more complicated than the other two instances. At least it appears so on the front end. Uh, this is probably, this question of what does it look like to be a Christian, an obedient Christian? What does it look like? What, how, how is Christ-centered obedience unique compared to other forms of obeying rules, compared to Judaism, compared to other religions? How is Christ-centered obedience different? That's a, that's a massive question that causes massive controversy in the church, even in the first century church where they are struggling with this question of, well, like, how much of the law do I look at? And what do I do with the law? And how do I obey it? And what kind of standards does God have for me now that my life is all of grace? So these are controversies in the first century, but more important, they're, they're controversies in your life. I don't, I don't know if you, if you understand that, if you're aware of that, but every one of us goes through life asking questions like, 
how high of a standard should I hold myself to? Um, like, how, how zealous for good work should I be? And there are these phrases that kind of float in our hearts, like, well, I don't want to do this in my own strength. If you've been helped by that phrase, I'm glad. I've never been helped by that phrase. It's just confused me more. I don't even know what that means, really, entirely. Because what is, what is my own strength? And how do I discern whether I'm doing it in my own strength? Because I'm not, it, it's not working? Like, is that, is that the explanation? That's the explanation I hear often. You know, uh, well, I was trying to kill this sin, but I was doing it in my own strength. And therefore, it didn't work. I don't know if that's the right... I don't know if there's a cause and effect relationship there exactly. So that hasn't been helpful to me. And, 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 and in, in, in many respects, this question has been a primary question for me my whole life, walking with Jesus, figuring out what does it mean to be an obedient Christian and why is that any different than being like an obedient Jew? Like, where's the difference? Like, and also, how can I do this successfully? Because I certainly have failed many times. And I don't know if I'm alone in this, but when I fail a bunch of times in a row, I assume I must be doing something wrong, right? So, so these are the kinds of questions that are centerpiece in my life, and I think they're probably in your life as well. There are, there are times when we try to make them not as important. Um, we can struggle with a particular sin or something that we're convicted of as sin and uh, eventually decide, you know what, I'm just going to relax the standard. I'm just going to, like, remove that expectation from my life. And we'll, like, lower the standard and figure out a way where we can accommodate our failure without calling it failure anymore. The problem I, I think I see in my life, and I think in others as well, is that when we do that, um, there's a part of us that doesn't really believe the line that we just sold ourselves. And so we walk around with this sort of inner loathing and this sort of inner disappointment we kind of kind of feel at some level like hypocrites when we reduce, when we lower the standard. So we're kind of telling ourselves a line, and we kind of know we're telling ourselves a line. You know, there's this tension. I think I think everyone's felt it between what uh, theologians refer to as quietism and activism. Activism is figure it out, dude. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Will it to happen? Be more disciplined. Work harder. And there's some truth there. That's not all lies, and that's not all legalism. And the other side, that's activism. And then on the other side, there's something called quietism. And quietism is let go and let God. Like, like don't, like they would be the ones to use the don't do this in your own strength kind of phraseology. And, and they, would, they would emphasize the role of the Spirit in working and the role of grace in working so that they would even say, like, that the, the key to Christian success is just to be more still. And, my goodness, I think there's some truth there as well. I was talking to a couple, this is, you know, 15 years ago, who were um, consistently falling into, they were dating, they were consistently falling into the trap of premarital sex. And, uh, and they said to me one time, you know, we just, we just, I'm asking them like, well, what's going on? Like, how is this, this continues to be a problem? Why? And they say, we're just not making Christ our treasure. And I thought, well, there's that. And there's belt buckles and other things involved in this. Like, it's not just like, it's not just this bucket, this sort of nebulous abstract bucket that is, we're failing to make Christ our treasure. Like there are actual things that are happening too. And, and, 
So that's the, that, that's a, that's the tension. And, and truthfully, like these people wanted to obey. There wasn't this, this wasn't them trying to, there's, this was sinners who love to sin, but who also happen to love Jesus. And that tension isn't just for 20 year old kids dating on their way to marriage, right? Like that's, that's in my life to this day. And what I hope to do today is I hope to give you some clarity on what Christian obedience is and why it is different and why it would have been a different experience for these people who were converted out of a religion of works into a religion of grace, but nonetheless continued to believe that they must obey God's word. So I I think a great text for us to see this play out. And I always think like the text I pick is the best one. So I'll always say like, I looked everywhere and this is the best text. Uh, So I'm going to say that again today. Uh, uh, But I think a great text, if not the best ever text, uh, would be Matthew 5. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. I think this is going to be a helpful text for you because uh, because in it we see Jesus doing straight up moral teaching. We see Jesus giving us moral lessons. He's telling us what to do and what not to do. I think it's going to be helpful for us to see Jesus, our Redeemer, the giver of all grace, the, the, the forgiving one, give us a lesson in behavior to give us a lesson in morality. Because in that lesson, embedded in that lesson, is, I believe, the uniquely Christian way of obedience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some sections out of this sermon that Jesus is preaching. And um, I'm just going to read sections. Uh, I'm not not excluding anything to make a point. I'm just trying to get through the whole section. So look at verse 21 to begin with. As I'm reading these, try to listen for patterns. Okay. Uh, Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Verse 31. It was also said, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, Verse 38. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then finally, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five distinctives of Christian obedience. And the first distinctive is this, an increased rigor of obedience, an increased rigor of obedience. The basic pattern you probably picked up on as I read those verses is that Christ revisits these folks' understanding of the law. You've heard that it was said, or it was said to you of old. And then he increases the rigor and difficulty of the commandment they were already struggling to obey. Do you see that? So he takes, for instance, adultery and says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, but I tell you that anyone who has looked at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. He's increasing the standard. He's increasing the bar. He's, he's raising the bar. So there's an increase in rigor of obedience. There is a, a, a rightful emphasis on grace in the gospel. But in that emphasis, we can sometimes conclude that God's standards for our practical righteousness have been lowered because it's all good now. We live in a state of grace. But it's just not that way at all. Uh, when you look at Jesus' teachings, they are higher and they are harder than the law. Um, the apostles continued that tradition as they taught. They didn't reduce the requirements of the law. They increased them. And one basic way, one basic way, you see Jesus doing this in Matthew 5, and you see it elsewhere in the apostles. The basic way they elevated the requirements of the law was they called us to love. And friends, love is harder than law. It is harder to do than law. It is higher than law. Love is hard to do. You know, there's that moment where he says, uh, Jesus is teaching on divorce. Or it's really, really difficult, really difficult. And, and, and one of the things he says later on is he says, you know, he says, this is, I think this is great uh, marriage, <laughs> a great reality check of marriage. Jesus is teaching the disciples and he says, you know, you, you can't divorce your wife. You, know, you just can't do that. You can't do that unless, you know, there's, there's uh, been adultery. Like, you just can't do that. And this is what the disciples responded. Like, well, then it would be better not to get married at all. Why did this is not uh, a point in the sermon, but let's just remember what the disciples were in very close, sharp reality feeling in that moment. Like, if I'm going to be stuck with the same person forever, minus this one sin, it might be buried, better not to get married at all. That's how hard marriage is, single people. Like, like people who are married, like, think, you mean there's no escape. <laughs> That's how hard marriage can be. But what Jesus is doing every time is he's elevating the standards. He's making it harder. And, he's, and the reason it's harder is because he's no longer just calling us to do stuff, to live with a checklist of do's and don'ts. He's calling us to love. And love is way harder than keeping the law. I, I just chuckle when I read or hear 
someone say, I'm so glad Jesus came so that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore and this and that. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, give me the Old Testament any day. The culture, the culture and the economy will, will develop as it does everywhere else where works is central. The culture and the economy would develop and it would be relatively easy to keep dietary food laws. And I could always pick up a bull on my way to the temple because there'd be someone to sell it to me. Like, give me the burqa over love. Like, just give me my list. I'll do my list. Give me my stuff I'm supposed to do. Give me my stuff I'm not supposed to do. Fine. Ask me to love my enemy. <laughs> what? It's a completely different thing. So, so the first point is, is that because love is higher than the law, Jesus's standards, Jesus's moral teaching, the uniquely Christian view of obedience is a higher standard, not a lower one. Uh, you know, I, I, like many of us, you know, I've always just kind of thought through certain Old Testament questions and saying, well, does this apply? Should I do this? Should I not do this? And I'll just tell you, like, in every one of those things is a basic pattern that involves love. And the question becomes, like, can I love people the way that Jesus expects me to? So, so that's the first idea, and it's, it's, it's terminated, it's concluded in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want to dismiss the idea that because grace is central to the gospel, God's standards have been lowered. And I also want to dismiss the idea that because grace is central to the gospel, that God's standards for our actual behavior has been lowered. And I want to suggest that this verse isn't only talking about Christ's righteousness being applied to us, but that this verse, coming on the heels of a bunch of teaching about behavior, is actually Jesus saying, like, this is what you should be aiming for. This is, this is the goal. You should aspire to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's the first uh, distinctive of Christian obedience. It's, it's, it's an increase. It's increased rigor, increased difficulty. Second point, there is an inverted role of obedience, an inverted role of obedience. At first blush, the scriptures that I read to you looks just like more law, only harder. At first blush, Jesus just looks like Uber Moses, like Moses on steroids. And I think the typical reaction to people who were actually interested in doing what Jesus said is, whoa, that's even harder, Jesus. What are you, what are you doing to us here? <coughs> but there's one word in this passage, a word that we're so used to hearing that we miss the revolution it implies, and that word is father. Look at verse 48 again. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A few years ago, a German scholar was doing research in New Testament literature and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism, in all existing books of the Old Testament, in all existing extra-biblical Jewish writings dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century A.D., there is not a single reference in all of that literature to a Jewish, of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father. So this moment 
where Jesus is sounding like Uber Moses is completely revolutionary because he says in verse 48, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus has just introduced the quintessential distinction between Christian obedience and every other kind. He says that the person who is being called to obey has been adopted into the family of God so that the creator of the universe has become your dad. And that changes everything about obedience. It changes everything about obedience. This single word, Father, Jesus' usage of the word Father in the midst of moral teaching is the key difference between Christian obedience and every other kind. This is a revolution in a word. I believe that that Christ-centered obedience is distinct in this one way. That the person we are called to obey is not a distant God, not an angry God, but a Father God. And that that one thing changes everything else. And one of the things it changes is that we have gone with that single word and all that it implies from seeing obedience as a way of earning God's favor to seeing obedience as a way to exercise God's favor or to employ God's favor or to run in God's favor. And that's why I say the second point is this inverted role of obedience. We used to use obedience as a way of earning God's favor, but now that God is our Father, we aren't in charge of, we don't have to seek His favor any longer because God isn't just our Father. He is the perfect Father, and His favor has been granted to us through Christ. And if if God's favor hadn't been granted to us through Christ, we wouldn't be His children and we wouldn't be in His family. So that we're no longer really thinking of obedience in terms of the points it earns me with God, but rather we're thinking of obedience as the privilege we have because God is our Father. Christ-centered obedience turns out to be more about acceptance given and then acted out. Acceptance given and then acted out. And friends, it turns out, I think if you think about this, human beings are uniquely built for this very dynamic of the person who loves you completely and calls you to hard things. That's when human people shine. When those two things exist together in the form of a coach or the form of a teacher or the form of a pastor or the form of a personal trainer, Whatever it is, when those two things exist together, human beings wake up and they start doing stuff that you never thought was possible, that they never thought was possible. When someone says, I love you so completely that your behavior is irrelevant to my genuine, deep affection to you. And I also love you so completely that I want your behavior to be as great as it possibly could be because you're going to be happier, holier. You're going to enjoy me more. When someone starts giving you both of those things at the same time, boy, life is different. Life is different. 
Now, we will, of course, get ornery and sinful sometimes when someone says, I love you to death and I want you to be the best you can be, so, so run that extra mile or, or, or put a couple extra plates on your deadlift or whatever it is. We get ornery and we say, well, if you love me, you wouldn't make me do this difficult thing. But of course, of course, over time, we see it consistently in our human experience. That kind of insistent love and lofty expectations wins out time and time and time again. And that's what we see in our relationship with God. And that's the, that's the really unique thing about Christian obedience. It's inverted. It used to be about earning God's acceptance. And now it just, it's just about exercising what God has already done for us. So Paul Tripp says it this way. Your lifestyle of obedience is never an exam. The exam has already been taken on your behalf. Jesus passed it with flying colors. And now you just live in this state as a child of God, brought into the family of God through adoption made possible by Jesus' substitutionary death. Like you've been brought there, and now you get to live like you belong there. It's a privilege. The third distinctive of Christian obedience, inherited reasons for obedience, inherited reasons for obedience. I'm still sticking on this, this word father. I think it's the centerpiece of this whole deal. Inherited reasons for obedience. When we examine Jesus's perfect obedience, we see Jesus live this perfect life. We see him so consistent in his holiness and his integrity. And we start to ask why. One of the things I rarely hear as a reason for why, because I mean, I, you know, I've taken part in these conversations too, and it's like, well, Jesus had no sin nature, so on and so forth. I never hear this explanation, but I think it might be central. Jesus loved the Father a lot. Like, that's the reason. I think the reason Jesus obeyed wasn't because he wanted to have a more successful life, or that he wanted to have peace at home, or that he wanted his marriage to to work better or that he wanted his kids to behave better or he wanted his finances to get in order. The reason Jesus behaved, the reason Jesus obeyed is because he loved the Father. You know, we know, I think, that the motivation for doing a thing really does project most significantly the outcome. We know that the motivations are central and this incredible thing has happened because we've been brought into the family of God through Jesus and we call the creator of the universe father. One of the incredible things that's happened is that we inherit from Jesus his reason for obedience, meaning we get from Jesus his love for God. And suddenly the reasons we behave or the reasons we attempt to obey are shifting it's not merely out of a fear of discipline or out of a fear of uh, displeasing God. It's, it's really it's out of a, a genuine affection and affinity for God and a desire to walk with him and enjoy him. Through Jesus's work, we've been brought into the family of God. And I, I thought about I thought about adoption here. And I, I thought about, you know, let's say hypothetically, we had a family in our church where there was one biological child and a bunch of adopted kids. Uh, Let's just say hypothetically that was the thing. And let's say hypothetically, now this is the biggest stretch of all, that the biological child was a good kid. Uh, no. Uh, but but, but think, about, think about the effect. Uh, just think of this chronologically for a minute. Think of the effect of, 
like, we're going to have this kid, and, and then we're going to bring a bunch of kids into our family, and this kid loves us a lot, and we can trust him that he's going to help these new kids in our family love us too. That there's this contagious love and honor that exudes out of older brother Jesus that passes on to all those he brings, the many sons of, the, of glory that he brings into God's family, and that we kind of get this, we inherit it formally and legally, and we catch it organically through our time as a Christian to where Jesus' affection for the Father gives us a whole new reason to obey. Uh, Galatians 4 speaks about this very dynamic. Um, let me read verse 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time, and, and Paul's talking about this pivot out of the law and out of slavery, out of fear, and into sonship. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And that's what I'm talking about, the inherited reason, the affection of Jesus for the father, the spirit of his son into our hearts. We've received the spirit of his son into our hearts. And what is that? What is the son all about? The son's all about obeying out of love for Jesus, out of love for the father. The son's all about obedience because of love. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The difference between a son's obedience and a slave's obedience is meant to be stark. Uh, the difference between an employer, an employee, who maybe kind of goofs off when the boss isn't around and really is just about, let me mail this in, let me get the work done that I need to get done and go home. The difference between that and a son who will inherit that business and who loves his dad the, the work output and the quality of work is drastically different. And that's the point Paul's making. He's making kind of an economic point. It's like a slave only has so much motivation to obey. But a son, especially when his father's perfect, the motivation is off the chart. Number four, infinite resources for obedience. Infinite resources for obedience. The word father means that our relationship with God changed. And with that new relationship comes free, unbegrudging access to all the resources we need to obey. This word father, I'm telling you, it's revolutionary. The reason why Jesus could give increased rigor of the law is because the word father and all that it implies is a game changer. And one of the things it means is, is that we now have a new relationship with God, and that relationship, as is a child with his father, means that we have unbegrudging access to all of the resources we need to obey. So, so let's just go through some of the things we get when we become God's child. One of the things we get, most important thing, first thing we get, is we get new hearts, Right? First thing we need in order to become God's child is to be regenerated by the Spirit. 
And the Bible says that the heart is the wellspring of life and that all of our words and thoughts and actions flow out of our heart. So should I be different after I'm saved? Should my life be different? Should my behaviors be different? Should my words be different? Well, yeah, because my heart is different. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, God's promise, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Something different happens on the inside of us when we become a child of God. And it all kind of orients around the spirit working and giving us a new heart and working in this new heart. So this all begins with a new heart. But praise God, a new heart is really just the beginning of our experience of obedience with the father. The Bible says that all those that God has made his children have become partakers of the divine nature. That sounds almost heretical, but it's in the Bible. So it ain't. We've become partakers of the divine nature. Last week, I noticed when I walked in, when I was walking kind of through everybody in their conversations before church, I noticed like this obvious uptick in energy amongst just all y'all. I mean, it was, it was, it was an obvious uh, brightness. And, and here's why. Um, the sun had been out for a, for a few days, praise the Lord. And we don't realize it, but when it's winter, we're all just kind of hanging on. And we're all just sort of like, you know, one foot in front of the other, force of will. That's why Midwesterners have character and Californians don't, by the way. We endure. We, we go through the difficult things. And, uh, and, and so, you know, you're just one foot in front of the other. Winter, it's like just a force of will. It's, it's really just leaning into the faith that the sun will appear one day. But then the sun comes out, and I don't know, if I, I saw it last Sunday. The sun comes out, and we have energy, and we want to start doing things, and we're standing a little bit more upright, and our voices are a little bit louder than they were when the sun wasn't out. But here's the idea. In Christ, the sun is always out. The, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is an eternal, never-ending never dimming source of strength for all those whom he saves uh, through Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have infinite resources for obedience. We now have, Peter says, all we need for life and godliness. There's this story in the old Testament where Moses is uh, on a mountain overlooking a battle that, that, that his people are having. And as long as his hands are lifted up, the people are winning the battle. But then when his hands get tired and they drop, the people start losing the battle. And I, I read that a few years ago and remembered another verse in the New Testament that reminded me that Jesus' arms do not grow weary. And he always makes intercession for us. And he is always standing above his people, perfect in perfect strength, in, in perfect competency, and in perfect prayer, 
interceding for his people. And that's a resource you have on your worst day, on your best day, on two hours of sleep, on eight hours of sleep. Like that's always there. Jesus is always interceding for us. I also want you to remember something incredibly wonderful, and that is that we have infinite resources. And I could just say that one of those resources is infinite resets. What what does that mean? What does that mean to have infinite resets? Let's talk about that from the perspective of weariness for a minute. You know, technically, if you have a Christian brother or sister, they're supposed to give you infinite resets too. Right? So you sin against them. You repent. They're supposed to forgive you. How many times? It's bigger than the number I can do in my head. It's, but that's not really saying much. It's, a, it's, it's infinite. Like you're, Technically, we're supposed to forgive each other infinitely. We're supposed to just be free to do that. But here's the deal. Practically... There is always some relational weariness that accompanies those resets. I mean, we hurt the person, and they're just people. They can't just wipe that hurt away. And so, you know, we, they are going to have to work at not being weary with you, not being weary with me as they forgive. That's, that's going to be a work that, unfortunately, our sin causes them to go through. And so there's just this simple problem that, that I think we in, impute and we send upward to God that's not there. And that's that when we sin against others, even when they forgive us, they're still wounded. Jesus was wounded for our sins. And he still bears their marks. But Jesus does not grow weary of you when you repent. Jesus doesn't get weary on the hundredth time that you come to him in failure. He doesn't. I mean, it's just, it's just impossible to understand someone who would be that loving, that kind, that patient. But, but that's just the truth. It's just what the Bible says. It's, it's that when you go to God after sinning and failing over and over and over and over again, that relationship with God is brand new over and over and over again. I think we all think about the story of the prodigal son as this unfortunate moment in a person's life. And I would be I would love if I was only the prodigal son one time in my life. But to think that that story could be replayed time and time and time and time and time again and that my father still runs to me on the thousandth time with the same energy and eagerness and love that he ran to me the first time, and that there's another feast waiting for me over and over and over and over again. This idea that we have infinite resources for obedience and that one of those resources is that we have an infinitely unweariable God. He does not grow weary with his children because his children bear the affection that he has for Jesus Christ himself. And so you get a new start, not only every day, but friends, there is no reason to, st- to stop. That You have no reason to hide from the dark thoughts you have a hundred times a day and to pretend that you don't matter or to pretend that you're not a problem. 
You have no reason to justify yourself. You have no reason to, to act like those things aren't there. You have no reason to avoid going over your day with a fine-tooth comb. And here's why. His love will not grow weary toward you. And you may repent a hundred times and you will feel so much better at the end of that day than if you don't. Because you will be encountering time and time and time again a God who does not weary in his love for those whom he has saved. And here's the thing. As hard as it is for you to see right now, if you're struggling with a consistent sin, when someone is quitting something, we think someone will say, well, I quit smoking six times last year. It's not exactly right. Statistically, we know that that's not exactly true. What's really happening is, is that that person is in the process of quitting smoking. And that really, thank God for humility in Christ, because otherwise we're, we're never going to learn the lesson. But I'm, I'm going to assume a good thing about you, that, that God's doing a work in your life to bring you humility as he is me, that we're not humble, but that he's faithful to help us get there. So that in all of these infinite resets, we are getting wiser. Like we're actually learning things. And you may think, no, I'm not. I'm still an idiot. It's not true. It's just not true. That's not right. You may have had the exact direct, the same response this time as last time and the time before and the time before and the time before. But if you're God's child, you are actually accumulating a handbook on what not to do. And you're acquiring, accumulating a handbook on how your heart works and what patterns provoke you to sin and where particular temptations lie, not only in terms of place, but also in in your own particular life and the way you do your life. And the truth is, is that most of us don't have friends that we could just sin against a thousand times uh, and, and endure long enough for us to figure it out. But we have a God that does that. And each time we really are learning something and we are kind of piecing something together. And if you're in the middle of failure, you're not going to feel like you have made any progress. But I guarantee you that's not how God sees things. So that not only is he not weary, but he he gives us wisdom in all of these infinite resets. Uh, Craig had something to share this morning. I'm, I'm just going to say it for you if that's okay, because I worked it into my 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 message after after we spoke. And last resource I want you to think about that's infinite is that we we have eternal glory ahead of us and our tempter doesn't. Our accuser is on a leash and his time is short and his limitations are real, but our God is not restrained and his limitations are non-existent. And so the very person who would, the, the being who wages war against our soul, the one who would accuse you and, and tell you that, that God has grown weary with you, how could he not? He has severe limitations. 
and you in Christ do not. So that we have, as one of our infinite resources, power over the devil, as it says in James 4, resist the devil and he will flee. So, these are four important points. Increased rigor, inverted, in, inverted reasons, uh, you know, an inherited reason to obey, uh, all of these infinite resources we have to obey. But I want to be clear that I'm saying what I'm saying, even though it's self-indicting in all, at many levels, and that is, is that the fifth point, we should see improved results in obedience. What has not happened as I have gloried in the grace and unweariness of God's love for me, what was not happening there and what I was not preparing there was to give you some kind of way to celebrate failure and to expect no progress. Far from it. All of these resources and this new reason to obey and this, all this flowing out of this new relationship we have with the Father, all of that means that we should expect to see, over time, improved results in obedience. Uh, there's a great article that I posted already on Basecamp this week uh, from a, a, a Bible teacher named Jim Wilkins. And she writes about a, a, a problem she refers to as celebratory failureism. Celebratory failureism. And this is what she says. In recent years, now you've, you've probably read books that contain at least traces of celebratory failureism. If you read Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that's a book that celebrates uh, antinomianism, failureism. Uh, so, so this is what she writes. In recent years, church leaders have rightly spoken out against moralistic therapeutic deism, which is just a fancy name for legalism. The idea that we earn God's favor through external obedience to a moral code. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, as in the days of Jesus, pervades our culture and even our churches. It's as harmful as it was today, as it was when Jesus spoke about it 2,000 years ago. As a response to this view of legalism, some have begun to articulate a skewed view of grace, one that discounts the necessity of obedience to the moral precepts of the law. I call this view celebratory failureism, the idea that believers cannot obey the law and will fail at every attempt. Furthermore, our failure is ultimately caused to celebrate because it makes grace all the more beautiful. And she just says, these days, obedience has gotten a bad name and failure has gotten a makeover. And we all do this. We all go back to the old tropes of, well, my plan for today is to fail, repent, repeat. Aw, shucks. That's all I am. No, well, no, you're a partaker of the divine nature. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You call the creator of the cosmos father. His spirit dwells within you. That spirit loves him. You grow to love him, and you will, over time, bear a family resemblance to the family you've been placed in. We don't celebrate failure. We hate it. But we don't hate it because it means we're not worth loving or that we can't be loved. We don't, we, don't, we don't hate failure either because we worship this image of ourself free from this sin or that sin. We just hate failure because we love God. And the love we have for God didn't come from us. It came from Jesus. So that over time, we do take on increased holiness, at least in noticeable ways. Uh, 
Rick Gamash uh, a couple years ago preached a sermon on on antinomianism and on this idea of celebratory failure, and I asked him to email it to me this week because I wanted to give him this quote. He says in response to another verse that I could just paste on the back of uh, Matthew 548, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, this is God's way, walk in it. Sanctification is more than you will fail, but there's grace for you. Sanctification is about failing less than we used to as we learn to obey in motive and deed, just like Christ our brother obeyed. It's about more and more taking on a family resemblance, being holy as our heavenly father is holy. 2 Corinthians 3 has been a pastorally significant verse for me. As I have fought for hope for my friends, as I've walked with them through their sin and my own, one word in this has been especially relevant to me and hope-giving to me. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And the word, the word that has been the, the anchor to my hope as I've walked with sinners who are struggling is the word degree. From one degree of glory to the next. One degree. An eternally patient, loving God can celebrate degrees. And he can see them in a way that you and I cannot. One degree of glory to the next. As we behold the glory of the Lord. We are transformed one degree of glory to the next. In our friendships, when sin wearies them and wounds them in our marriages, our children or our children seeing their parents, we are not very good at seeing and celebrating degrees of improvement because a degree less of this sin or a degree more of this righteousness isn't really going to help us much. And so we are impatient for the change of our spouses and our children, our children for us and so on and so forth. And we don't care about degrees. We want change, change. Now my life is terrible because you're terrible. Stop being terrible. Oh boy. Oh boy. Do you do you want the mercy of God or do you want to be an idiot? I mean, decide. Like, do you want to be an instrument of mercy or do you want to be an idiot? If you want to be an instrument of mercy, then you must understand that from before you were created, God had a plan to change you from one degree of glory to the next. And he has been magnificently patient and unwearied and giving you infinite resets. And he has equipped you with all the resources you need for life and godliness.
And he has given you Jesus and he is at work in your life. And sometimes, many times, he is measuring the change in degrees. God has been gloriously patient with his people because his people are his children. Yes, I want this to be clear. The standard that Christ brings us is more rigorous, not less than the law. In every instance, he has the opportunity. He ramps up the requirements, not reducing them. But our relationship with works has been inverted. We no longer use works as a means of securing God's favor because we have in Christ God's favor in spades. And Christ has given us, through his spirit, the righteous reason to obey. We have a new motivation to obey. We're no longer slaves, we're sons. And we actually do love God. We love sin too. We actually do love God. And because we are sons of the infinitely wealthy and infinitely generous, and I will even say infinitely gregarious holy God, we have everything we need. All the resources we need. And therefore, it is right. It is right to expect improved results in our obedience. I think of it simply this way. When I was saved, I became God's child. And with that came the freedom to be a child. And there is great freedom to be a child. There is great freedom in just being a child. I think what sin did, as it was put in us, as we were born in sin, it robbed every one of us of our spiritual childhood. We didn't have ever, we didn't have this idea that we lived in our father's house, a glad, generous, patient father, and that he had a million resets for us. And that there was this inevitability to becoming like dad, because that's what kids do. That grow up in their father's household. So that this word father that Jesus uses indicates a complete revolution. You are free to be a child and you as a child of God will grow. Because that's how things work. Let me pray.